So the reading this morning is Genesis chapter 42, verses 1 to 28. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there. We may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. He said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you, and let him bring your brother, while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you. Or else, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this, and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody. Let the rest go and carry grain for the famine to your households, and bring your youngest brother to me, so your words will be verified, and you shall not die. And they did so. And they said to one another, In truth we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you to not sin against the boy? You did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money bag or money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? Let's pray. Holy Father, we uh, thank you for your word. We thank you. Uh, that it's truth, that all of it is uh, profitable for uh, teaching us this uh, day. And we pray, Lord, that you be with uh, David as he um, brings your 
word to us and uh, explains it. And we pray that we would be uh, listening attentively uh, as he preaches. We pray these things in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, since the middle of November last year, when we began chapter 39, our focus in these studies of Genesis has been on Joseph and what happened to him after his brother sold him. The traders who were traveling down to Egypt, uh, who then sold him to Potiphar and so on and so forth. As we began chapter, f- as we begin chapter 42 this morning, we, we find Joseph now in verse 6 as the governor over the land. He is the one the whole world is coming to, to buy grain from in order to survive this severe famine that has now started. But they come to Joseph to live. They want to live. They don't want to die. So they come to the one who can keep them alive, who can give them life. As we finished our study last time, we were pressing the point again how Joseph, as a savior to the Egyptians, as well as to whoever else would come to him and buy from him, He is a type, a shadow. He is a kind of the greater Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior who calls to a spiritually famished world. The words we read of in Isaiah 55, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear, and come to me. Hear me, that your soul may live. Savior Joseph is now installed as governor of the land, or as the Lord of the land, as his brothers refer to him as in verses 30 and 33. And we now pick up the story there and the re-emerging of his family who were back in Canaan, but who now come to Egypt. His brothers, who 22 years earlier had sold him into slavery. And we begin to pick up the story now with Joseph, the father of this unique covenant family. Three points. First of all, is that the brothers are sent. The brothers are sent, for the famine has now reached the family home of Jacob in Canaan. Their fields haven't produced the crop that they needed. The barns and the kitchen cupboards are emptied. The crisis is developing there before them. But there are rumors that in in Egypt there is grain, and that rumor has reached the family table. Maybe some of their neighbors had decided to travel down as Many in the world would have started to do now. They have heard that in Egypt there's a man who will sell them grain, and so they begin to make the journey. Presumably, those unable to make the journey would have died. Presumably, those with no money to buy grain in Egypt would have died. We see those images, don't we, on our TVs of places of famine and drought and so forth, and it's terrible. There is great devastation. Therefore, Jacob, as head of the family, he takes charge of the situation and he asks his sons, verse 1, why do you look at one another? Here's a picture of 11 brothers who know that there is a growing problem, who have noticed that the portions on their plates are getting smaller, but who don't know what to do about it. 
very much the opposite of Joseph. Do you remember? Joseph conveyed to Pharaoh the problem of the famine coming, and he said, this is what you need to do. Whereas his brothers don't know what to do. They appear a different type of person. They appear indecisive. They appear to show a lack of initiative. Possibly they were sat waiting on someone else solving the problem. But no one says anything. They just sit around looking at one another. And it's Jacob who tells them that he's heard there's grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. Jacob here is a man of faith, a man who trusts in the Lord, the Lord who has promised Jacob and his family great promises, and that is a good thing to do, to trust in the Lord. In times of proverbial famine, when that comes to your life, it's good to trust in the Lord. And yet any man of faith, anyone with biblical faith, must also be a man of action. Someone who cries to the Lord for help, but who also looks for answers to his cries for help. Psalm 37 tells us, trust in the Lord and do good. Trust in the Lord and do good. In other words, the blessings that we would hope, that we would expect to come to us from God, will not be the experience of the lazy will not be the experience of the deliberately negligent. But as we sing, we trust in you, and in your name we go. Trust in the Lord and do what you can. You understand? For some people say, I'm trusting in the Lord, so I'm just going to sit here and do nothing. And some say, I just want to get on and do something. And they forget about the Lord. The two things must go hand in hand. There's a marriage here between showing our reliance upon God who holds our lives in his hands trusting in him, but also doing what we can as what comes to us as intelligent people. What are we to do at this time of rising prices? What are we to do at this time of rising interest rates? We trust in the Lord. Of course we do. But we do what we can. We get up and we look around for best deals, for best opportunities. We look for the means by which God will help us through these difficult times. So the sons or the brothers arise and they set off to Egypt, only not all 11 go. Jacob is refusing to let them take Benjamin with them. Benjamin, you remember, was Rachel's other son. She had Joseph and then she had Benjamin and she died giving birth to Benjamin back in chapter 35. And so Jacob, having lost his beloved wife and then lost his beloved son Joseph, Jacob is now understandably determined. He is not going to allow his youngest, his now beloved Benjamin, to leave his sight. We can understand that. He's very, very protective of him. To be fair, Benjamin didn't have to go down to Egypt with him. I mean, how many men does it take to go shopping? How many men does it take to go down to Egypt and to get the grain for the family? Surely 10 would do it, we hope. Well, secondly, then, we have brothers who are seen. And these 10 men arrive in Egypt. And you remember, the whole world is traveling to Egypt. And so this is just one group, tiny group, comparatively to the vast sea of faces that turn up in Egypt. And so into the great hall, I presume, or a great barn or whatever, they come and they approach the man at the front, verse 6, and bow down before him with their faces the ground. Now, we need to try and appreciate the suspense here, okay? We know the end of the story. We need to try and be there with them, for the question here is, will they recognize their little brother from 20 years ago? As they 
raise their heads from having bowed before him as they look up into his eyes, the eyes of the man who is now the Lord of the land? Will they recognize their little brother, the brother they hated, intensely hated 20 years ago, the brother they sold into slavery 20 years ago? Is there anything? There's nothing, nothing. And we might query that. We think, oh, come on. Surely there was something. There's nothing. You see, this was the last place they would have expected to see Joseph. If they were looking for Joseph in Egypt, they wouldn't have come here. They would have gone to, you know, the slums of Egypt, looking for the the slaves of Egypt where they were working. But stood there, Joseph would have looked totally unrecognizable to them. They would have had their beards as the Hebrews would have, but he has no beard. He's dressed as an Egyptian. He sounds Egyptian. We're told he used an interpreter. And remember, over 20 years have passed, and do any of us look the same as we looked 20 years ago? We might feel as if we're the same 20 years ago until you look in the mirror. You think, oh, I've changed. You find some old photographs that come up on your phone. You know how Google does that. Just to remind you, there's a wee history shot from five years ago. You think, oh, look at me then five years ago. Twenty years ago, this was a 17-year-old lad. So it's not too shocking that they don't recognize their little brother. They haven't a clue that this governor of Egypt is the same Joseph, but he recognizes them. Their faces, their, their gait, maybe one of them had a particular walk or something, but their Hebrew language, he, 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 unders, he, he sees them. And I, I wonder, I wonder was that just that little pause momentarily as he locked eyes with them and, you know, you know, like you take a double take, you know. Sandra and I were, were at a Cayley in Leeds a few weeks ago and uh, there was a lady there and I locked eyes with her. She locked eyes with me. I thought, I've seen you somewhere before. Later on, we, we got talking, and she was the organist of a church I had preached in 20 years ago. I thought, it was just, just, some, just a flicker. I've seen you before. And I wonder, was the song with Joseph here just a flicker? It's amazing how the suspense here is palpable in the passage that we're looking at. In fact, we're told that he remembered his dreams, the dreams he had had over 20 years ago. That meant that one day his brothers would be doing exactly what they were doing just now, bowing down to him. And here it is. It's all happening before his eyes. Look what comes next, having recognized them, Joseph's treatment of them and his tone with them changes. We're told he treated them as strangers and he spoke roughly to them, accusing them of being spies. Verse 9, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And really, verse 9 is the point where we begin this rather long, protracted examination of the brothers where Joseph is basically probing them to find out about them. He knows who they are, but Joseph wants to know how they are. Are these the same men he knew them to be 22 years ago? Are they still full of hatred towards him? Arguably, are they still the murderous men he knew them to be? You remember back in chapter 34 how they they butchered the men of Shechem for mistreating their sister Dina. So in chapters 42, chapter 43, chapter 44, Joseph is probing them. He's testing them to see, has my brothers changed? Or he had. He had certainly changed. Now there is a bit of a debate as to whether there was a right thing for Joseph to do this. To have done it so covertly, you know, undercover, to be doing, to be in a sense lying to his brothers about who he was. And you can talk about that over coffee. 
But we have to remember this. If Joseph had have revealed his identity straight away, he would have never have known the truth as to how these men really were at heart. And if he had just said, oh, my brothers, oh, I forgive you there and then, then the seriousness of what they have done, the guilt of their past would have been glossed over. We can talk about that as well. But to begin with, he accuses them of being spies. What do you think of that as the initial thing to raise with his brothers? Why spies? Obviously, Egypt at that point in, in time, they may well have felt vulnerable. And so, yes, there may have been the possibility of foreign agents coming in to, to investigate and to look for weakness and opportunity to invade and so forth. But, but why does Joseph accuse them of this? Well, I wonder if it's to do with something that they accused him of back home. Remember when he had given Jacob his father a bad report of them? Chapter 37, verse 2. From their perspective, Joseph had been spying on them. From their perspective, Joseph had come to them, seen what they were doing, and then reported back to their dad on all the stuff he had seen. So maybe when they saw Joseph come over the hill to investigate and to check on them, when his father Jacob had sent them off. Go now and see if it's well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. They thought he's spying on us. I don't think Jacob was intending Joseph to be a spy, but that, that's what he seemed to be to these brothers. These brothers who may well have been up to something that day and just seeing someone they hated coming with his lovely, flowing, colorful robe. Joseph just being there may have incensed them, may have stirred their conscience with feelings of guilt and exposure, making them feel uncomfortable. So if they had accused him of being a spy, here Joseph accuses them to see how they will react to such a claim. And they deny it passionately. Verse 11, they deny it. We're not spies. We never have been spies. We're, we're honest men. We're all sons of the same man. What do you think they meant by that, sons of the same man? Why use that to say we're not spies. I think they're probably trying to reason with Joseph. I mean, if someone were intending to spy on others, why would he risk sending 10 of his sons and potentially lose all his family at once? No sensible man would, would do that. He would send only one or two, certainly not all 10. But of course, Joseph knows that, doesn't he? Don't forget that throughout all of this. He knows they're not spies. But hearing their answer and seeing them not react angrily, as they might have, is a good thing. Maybe they have changed, but he persists with them. You are spies. And then look at what they say next, verse 13. We, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Now, don't forget, Joseph knows all of this, but as he listens to what they say, he's cross-checking everything they say. We are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father. Here it comes, and one is no more. Who's the no more? It's Joseph. He stood in front of them. He's the one who is no more. I wonder, was there a little smile, a little flicker of a smile on his face, hearing himself described like that? Here I am, the governor of Egypt, and they think I'm no more. But he presses them more, because that wasn't the truth, was it? How do they know he was no more? They sold him into Egypt for all they knew. He was still alive. So they're still persisting in untruth. He presses them more with more harsh words and imprisonment just as they had done with him when they threw him into the pits. You see, what 
Joseph's doing here is he's holding up a mirror in front of them. He's wanting his brothers to see what it feels like and what they had done to others. I wonder, has that ever happened to you? When an event or a memory you experience, it triggers something in your memory of your past. Something which you did or something that you said to to someone else that was wrong. And now, having experienced something similar yourself, you, as it were, see yourself in the mirror and now you realize that's, that, that, that's what I did to him. But that's what I said to her. How I feel now must be how she felt when I said that to her. You'd forgotten, but now your conscience is stirred and you, you sense guilt. And so what is created there for you is an opportunity an opportunity for you to acknowledge before God what you have done wrong and to repent of it and to ask for forgiveness. And if you can't get to the person you sinned against of your past, at least you can pray for them, asking that God would heal them. Who knows, some of our past experiences, there are people out there walking around damaged because of us. And as we're reminded of them, we can pray for them. If we can't go to them and say, what I did to you, I am so sorry. I was completely wrong what I did. Please, will you forgive me of that? We can at least pray that God would help them and heal them if they are damaged and hurt still. This is what Joseph is doing here. He's, he's raking the ashes to see if he can stoke up old memories of, in the hope of helping them, helping them see how they had treated him years beforehand. I really don't think Joseph was doing all of this out of spite. You know, they made me feel horrible, so I'm going to make them feel just as horrible now, like a, an act of revenge. I don't think he's doing that. Or look at verse 24. Look how emotional he gets when he sees remorse in them, when he sees regret in them. There's a sense here, Joseph loves these brothers. Even though they have offended him, he loves them. The one they offended, the one they sinned against, He has the power to destroy them, and yet he does not treat them as they deserve. Instead, he loves them, and he is working towards their repentance. He is working towards their reconciliation with him. Does that remind you of anyone? Is that not a picture of Christ? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is one of us, against whom we have sinned, we have offended, who holds our lives in his hands, who has the power to destroy us, and yet he chooses not to yet gives us opportunity to acknowledge our sin, and turn from it, and find forgiveness. Joseph here even brings hardship into their life in the hope of seeing them repent. They had spoken roughly to him, so he does the same to them. They had accused him, so he accuses them. They had locked him up in a pit, and so he locks them up in a prison. And for three days, he leaves them. He puts the pan on the oven and lets it simmer just for three days, allowing the intensity of this situation to bring to the surface memories of the past. And it appears to be working as we close our th- this morning, our third point this morning. That is, the brothers are stricken. They were sent by Jacob, then they were seen by Joseph, and now they are stricken by the Lord. You see there in verse 18, after three days, Joseph comes and changes the plan. He's unsettling them. Remember, the plan for him was changed. They were going to leave him in the pit to die. Someone came and said, let's not do that. Let's sell him instead. Why have his blood on our hands? Remember the plan changed for Joseph? Joseph now comes here and changes the plan for them. First, he told them only one would be sent home to bring their youngest brother back. That would be proof that they weren't spies. But now he's changing the plan. He tells him he'll keep one of them and send the rest back. 
And so he unsettles them. He unsettles them by changing the plan. But he also unsettles them by referring to their God. Do you see that? I fear God. I fear Elohim. Did they? They hadn't mentioned God yet. The brothers of this covenant family, this unique family on the face of the earth, they haven't mentioned God yet. And yet he mentions it. He says he fears their God, but did they fear him? Had they feared him before when they had behaved towards Joseph? as they're now experiencing themselves. This is what Joseph is trying to get them to think, you see. To remember with his words, with his actions, will they, will they respond to this unsettling situation? In effect, he's doing as any preacher would look to do with his words on a Sunday morning, using texts like Genesis 43 to try and invoke a response to what the text is saying to us. Joseph is at work in their lives. And here he is, he's able to stand and listen as the brothers discuss what had happened to them, verses 21 and 22. In truth, surely we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now remember, they have no idea that the Lord of the land is Joseph. They're not stood there working it all out. They haven't figured it out, you know, we imprisoned you, Joseph, and so yes, now you're doing this to us. We get it, fair enough. Yeah, we see what you're doing. They don't see what Joseph's doing. This is the finger of God, you see. This is God bringing them back to face what they did, to look again at it, but now with a broken and contrite spirit. Look at the words they use that suggest they are stricken. They refer to Joseph as our brother. I don't know what they would have referred to him back earlier on maybe a curse word or two, but he's now our brother. They talk about the distress of his soul. They talk about him begging us. This is the language of ten brothers who appear stricken. whose consciences are being stirred and poked by the merciful Spirit of God. Back in chapter 37, when they'd stripped Joseph and thrown him into a pit, what did they do then? Verse 25, then they sat down to eat. There was no shame there. There was no remorse there. But look at them now. Look what happens when the finger of God rests on the conscience of someone who's been carrying guilt around with them for many a year. Now it comes to the surface. Verse 22. Now there comes a reckoning for his blood. The New Living Translation puts it, now we have to answer for his blood. And this is another turning point in the journey of Joseph being reconciled to his brothers. But they begin to admit their wrong, and they begin to be, as they claimed to be, honest men. You see, for 20 years plus, they had been lying to their father about what had happened. When you look at what they say there in verses 21 and 22, the, the impression you get from what they say, the memories of that day hadn't been totally forgotten on them. What they saw of Joseph that day, what they heard of Joseph begging, help me from the bottom of the pit, help me, help me brothers, calling their names out, don't leave me like this. That had haunted them, I think, for 20 years. Hearing that voice and seeing those sights, but they, they had distracted their, their consciences, they had got on with life, looked after family, raised children, all of these sorts of things, but lived with this niggling little thing in their conscience that wouldn't give them peace. And now the boil is being lanced. It's painful, it's uncomfortable, but the relief is beginning. 
Now they're taking personal responsibility for the wrong that they did. Now their conscience is stricken with guilt. Friends, for you and me, this is the first step towards experiencing the joy, the relief of forgiveness from God. When we take personal responsibility for the wrong we have done. When we stop blaming others. When we stop blaming our parents, our upbringing, our wife, or whatever else. We stop saying, well, okay, what I did wasn't, wasn't great, but you know. When we stop talking like that, but and God has patiently and tenderly brought us to know our guilt, and now we must acknowledge to him, I was wrong, I was wrong. And you say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the forgiveness, that's the reconciliation that this, Joseph, this story of Joseph is headed to, that the one these brothers think doesn't understand them in verse 23. The Lord of the land, as they call him, is in fact one of them. But he does know them. He personally knows the wrong they've done. And whilst he has the power to save or destroy them, he takes them through these difficult and uncomfortable situations, testing the genuineness of their remorse, testing the, the genuineness of their guilt, that one day they might be fully reconciled again. Friends, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Lord is saying to us this morning. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Joseph and who we see in Joseph, our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O oh God, for a work of your, of your spirit that what we profess to be truly sorrow, sorrowful for, we would indeed be so. Lord, you call us to repent of our sins, to, to acknowledge them, to stop trying to hide them, and to bring them to you. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to make sense to you of times of famine in our life, when it's often through these times that you bring to mind the wrong we have done and our need to get right with you. Lord, help us to learn from these stories in the book, that we might learn and grow and know the forgiveness of our sin. You help us do that, Lord, please. Thank you for Joseph. We pray, Lord, that we will grow through our study of him. We ask for this in Jesus Christ. Amen. We close this morning singing, All of us in sin were dying, all in Adam had a share. All our dreams and tears and trying only deepened our despair. In this hopeless situation, how impossible our case. All stood under condemnation. None could help or take our place. Stand as the music begins.
Father, thank you for the greater Joseph, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he came to us to where we are, and for us he gave his life. Help us to remember him today as we celebrate his day, his risen, resurrected day, and today seated in glory. Lord, help us to enjoy you today, Lord, this first day, and to give you our worship and honor. We ask in your name, O Lord. Amen.